Chapter 7 of Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 7. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 7, by John Hay and John George Nicolay. Chapter 7, Grant's May Battles in Mississippi. General Grant passed the night of the 29th of April, 1863, in giving minute and elaborate orders for the movement of the morrow. He provided for the safety of his camp against sudden attack, for the bringing forward of a full supply of rations. He ordered the chief commissary of the 13th Corps to provide that command with three days' rations for their subsistence for five days, writing all these orders with his own hand. Early on the morning of the 30th, McClernand's corps passed down the river, closely followed by McPherson, and landed at Bruinsburg, six miles below Descroons on the east bank. It was Grant's intention to go to Rodney, ten miles further, from which point he knew there was a good road to Port Gibson, but he ascertained from an intelligent negro that a road ran directly from Bruinsburg over the hills to that place. He therefore hurried McClernand's force over the river with the greatest dispatch, and as soon as they could be supplied with rations for three days in their haversacks, they set out for the hills, two miles and a half inland, which they found, to their great relief, entirely unoccupied. They had still an hour of daylight before them, and Port Gibson was only ten miles away. They marched through the late afternoon and far into the night, meeting no obstacle until, about an hour after midnight, McClernand's skirmishers came up with the enemy, posted four miles to the west of Port Gibson. This was a village deriving its sole importance from the junction of a number of radiating roads, one of which commanded the route of retreat from Grand Gulf by way of Willow Springs, ten miles to the east. It was the first place at which the advance of Grant could be disputed, and its occupation would render Grand Gulf untenable. Both sides rested on their arms until morning, when, with the earliest light, the Battle of Port Gibson began. The Confederate forces consisted of a portion of the garrison of Grand Gulf, which had been hastily detached as soon as General Bowen became aware of the flanking movement of the day before. Pemberton had also taken the alarm, and had ordered Stevenson to send the five thousand men already directed to be held in readiness. The road from Bruinsburg divides some four miles west of Port Gibson to meet again before entering the town, and it was there that McClernand's advance had found the Confederates posted. Green's brigade on the south branch of the road, and E.D. Tracy's on the north. The Confederates made a brave stand, and were greatly assisted by the character of the ground, which was rough and broken and almost impassable, by cause of steep ravines and undergrowth. But the Union force was too heavy for them. Peter J. Osterhaus's division was placed on the left, and attacked Tracy's brigade on the northern road. The divisions of E. A. Carr, Hovey, and Andrew J. Smith attacked Green an hour later on the southern road. He was soon dislodged by the Union right, and driven slowly along the road. But Tracy held Osterhaus in check until later in the day, when Logan's division of McPherson's corps came on the field, and McPherson brought one brigade of it into the fight under his own eye. The enemy soon gave way in front of McPherson and Logan, and although reinforced from Vicksburg during the fight, his whole line speedily followed, retreating through Port Gibson and taking refuge for the night beyond the forks of Bayou Pierre. 
General Bowen, with his 8,000 men, including his reinforcements, had made a gallant fight, but it was useless for him to attempt to stand against 19,000. The losses on each side were nearly equal, the Union loss being 875, and the Rebel loss 832. General Pemberton, who was by this time convinced that an attack in force was in progress on his left flank, and that Grant's army was pouring through Bruinsburg like a flood through a crevasse, had left Jackson and hurried to Vicksburg, calling in his scattered detachments from every side to oppose the invasion. He made what hasty dispositions were in his power to defend the line of the Big Black River. General Loring was ordered from Meridian to Rocky Springs, and sending Lloyd Tillman to Grindstone Ford on the north bank of Bayou Pierre, to delay, if possible, the crossing of the national forces at that point, he rode over to Grand Gulf, and, after consultation with Bowen, who had retreated there after the Battle of Port Gibson, the place was hurriedly evacuated, and at once occupied by Admiral Porter. As soon as day dawned on the 2nd, McClernand's corps dashed into the town and beyond, until their progress was arrested on the south fork of Bayou Pierre, where the Confederates, in retreating, had burnt the bridges. The Union troops set to work with the utmost zeal to build them anew, floundering in the water, swarming like bees over the blackened timbers, and tearing down all the houses within reach for planking. Two of Logan's brigades, not waiting for the completion of the bridges, forded the bayou, and pushed on to the left. Reinforcements to Grant were constantly arriving from the west side of the river, and McPherson's corps, having been strengthened by the addition of M. M. Crocker's division, Grant ordered him to push forward and attack the enemy in the direction of Willow Springs. He reached the North Fork at Bayou Pierre, and found the grindstone bridge over it on fire. He repaired it during the night, and crossed his troops at daylight. Meeting with little resistance on the northern bank, he drove the enemy through Willow Springs, thus cutting off what garrison there might be at Grand Gulf from communication with their friends on the east. Logan and Crocker kept up the pursuit, with occasional skirmishing and capture of prisoners all day, till the enemy were driven to Hankinson's Ferry over the Big Black, fifteen miles northeast of Port Gibson. McPherson at this point was so close upon the heels of the rebels that he seized the bridge before they had time to fire it, and established himself firmly there. Grant, with a cavalry escort of twenty men, meanwhile rode straight for Grand Gulf, which he found was evacuated, and the navy in possession. Porter was absent, having started that morning to lend Farragut a hand at the mouth of the Red River. Grant's blows in the last few days had fallen so hard and so fast that the enemy had not had leisure to save his heavy guns, and as the victorious general inspected the formidable arms and the system of works which, seen from the rear, were far more extensive than they appeared from the river, he had reason to congratulate himself on the wisdom of the march to Bruinsburg, which had avoided the danger and the bloodshed involved in a direct attack upon the fortifications of Grand Gulf. It was now three days since he had been in bed or undressed, so he begged a change of linen on board one of the gunboats, and thus refreshed, spent the greater part of the night in writing dispatches. It is astonishing to see the amount of work, the thought, care, and minuteness of detailed instruction which he crowded into those few hours. He wrote to General Halleck, giving a full account of his expedition up to date, to Sherman, ordering him to effect a junction with the main body as soon as possible, 
full of details as minute as the following. Quote, I wish you to collect a train of 120 wagons at Milliken's Bend and Perkins's plantation. Send them to Grand Gulf, and there load them with rations as follows. 100,000 pounds of bacon, the balance coffee, sugar, salt, and hard bread, end quote, etc. With equal detail, he gave orders for the construction of a road for land transportation from Young's Point to a landing below Warrenton. All his faculties seemed sharpened by the emergency. There was nothing too large for him to grasp, nothing small enough for him to overlook. He had heard that day of Grierson's raid, and its thorough success had contributed to the steady elation which is visible in all his utterances of that day. He says to General Halleck, his army is in the finest health and spirits, quote, composed of well-disciplined and hardy men who know no defeat and are not willing to learn what it is. The country, he further says, will supply all the forage required for anything like an active campaign and the necessary fresh beef. The other supplies will have to be drawn from Milliken's Bend. This is a long and precarious route, but I have every confidence in succeeding in doing it. I shall not bring my troops into this place, but immediately follow the enemy, and if all promises as favorably hereafter as it does now, not stop until Vicksburg is in our possession. End quote. In this last phrase we find the only intimation which he gave to the government at that time of the campaign upon which he was resolved for resolution which was the turning point of his career, for in that day's resolve was the germ of the victories of Vicksburg and Chattanooga, of Appomattox and the Presidency. It had been his intention, as he said in his dispatch from Vicksburg three weeks later, to, quote, detach an army corps of the necessary force to cooperate with General Banks to secure the reduction of Port Hudson and the union of the two armies, end quote, but having received a letter from Banks, stating that he could not be at Baton Rouge before the 10th of May, and that after the reduction of Port Hudson he could only add 12,000 to the force in the field, Grant instantly concluded that he would make his campaign without reference to Banks. He felt, rather than knew, the dispositions of the enemy opposed to him. By keeping his army well in hand, he could interpose it between the force of Pemberton, now collected on the line of the Big Black on his left, and the force which Johnston would naturally collect about him at Jackson. He knew he was stronger than either of these bodies, and in striking contrast with those generals in the East who constantly multiplied in their imagination the force of the enemy, it was the habit of Grant to make the opposite error, and to minimize a hostile force which he could not see. He estimated, at this time, Pemberton's force at about three-fifths of its actual strength. The exigencies of his first day's battle, and the pursuit of the retreating enemy, had brought him fifteen miles in the direction of the Confederate army. He felt it would be wasting too much time at that stage of the campaign to countermarch that distance to join General Banks. There will be no disparagement to Grant if we admit the possibility of another consideration which may have influenced him at this moment. Banks, as Badeau says, was his senior and on the junction of their forces, must have assumed command. And it will not be accusing Grant of any taint of vanity, presumption, or ambition to say that he probably felt that for the work in hand he was a better man than Banks. Having taken this momentous resolution, upon the result of which depended either the greatest military service ever rendered the Republic and an immortal fame, or in the other event, 
irremediable failure and disgrace, and then, having sat down without a tremor of the pulse to give directions to generals, sea captains, quartermasters, and commissaries for every incident of the opening campaign, Grant mounted his horse again and rode to his troops at Hankinson's Ferry, where he found his own troops and personal luggage had arrived. Since leaving hard times, his sole worldly gear had been a toothbrush. He had taken from day to day the first horse he could lay his hands on, and had shared the luncheon of any general near whom he happened to halt. His forces remained for three days at Hankinson's Ferry, waiting for supplies and reinforcements from across the river, which were constantly arriving. Though the army was on short rations of bread, they had in this fertile and populous district a great plenty of other things, and after the long months of levee, swamp, and bayou, they heartily enjoyed those first days of high and dry land, of fresh beef and poultry. The men were not entirely idle. General Grant employed the time and demonstrations on both sides of the Big Black, for the purpose of inducing the enemy to think that his intentions pointed in that direction. But on the morning of the 7th, the army, in high health and spirits, broke camp and started on their march towards the center of the enemy's line between Vicksburg and Jackson. Quote, it was my intention here, says General Grant, to hug the Big Black River as closely as possible with McClernand's and Sherman's corps and get them to the railroad at some place between Edwards's station and Bolton. End quote. He intended McPherson, commanding the right wing, to move by way of the village of Utica to Raymond, and thence to make a rapid dash upon Jackson, the capital of the state to do what damage might be swiftly wrought upon the railroad and public stores, and then to rejoin the main army. A close watch was to be kept on the ferries of the Big Black to prevent the sudden descent of a body of the enemy upon his line of communication. In this order, therefore, the army moved north the march of five days, McPherson holding the right, McClernand the left, Sherman following McClernand, and gradually coming to the center abreast of him. On the morning of the 12th, McPherson struck a brigade of the enemy commanded by General John Gregg, supported later by another under General W. H. T. Walker at Raymond. Logan's division first attacked and gradually pushed the enemy before him for two or three hours, until on the arrival of Crocker's division, the Confederates broke and retreated towards Jackson, Logan following in pursuit until night. General Grant, during the battle, was with Sherman, seven miles west of Raymond, and about the center of the army. This sharp action, and additional reports which Grant had received of the arrival of considerable reinforcements under Johnson at the state capital, determined him to countermand the orders under which the left wing and center were now marching to the railroad, and he directed both Sherman's and McClernand's corps to concentrate upon the right, while McPherson pushed forward towards Jackson. Grant was determined, as he says, to make sure and leave no enemy in his rear. The army was certainly fortunate in the possession of a general who could change his plans at a moment's notice to suit the exigencies of the hour, and of officers and troops who could march as fast and as far as it suited their general to command them. McPherson pushed to the north from Raymond, occupying the town of Clinton on the railroad between Jackson and Vicksburg, thus interposing his corps between Johnston and Pemberton, and Sherman, with equal celerity, marched on the direct route between Raymond and Jackson, 
arriving south of the town just as Macpherson arrived in a pouring rain on the north side. On the ninth of May, the Confederate government, seriously alarmed at Grant's march into the interior, had ordered General Johnston to proceed at once to Mississippi with 3,000 good troops and take command of the forces there. The fatal divergence of views between Johnston on the one side and the Confederate government on the other had continually widened since the conference at Grenada some months before. Pemberton was constantly importuning Johnston for reinforcements, which the latter could not send him, and in the latter part of March he made an urgent request that Van Dorn's cavalry might be returned to him from the Army of the Tennessee. Johnston replied that that force was much more needed in Tennessee than it could be in Mississippi, and that it could not be sent back so long as that state of things existed. There is some reason in Pemberton's claim that but for his poverty and mounted troops, Grierson's raid would have been impossible, and Grant could never have advanced so easily as he did from the river into the heart of the state. But on the 12th of May, when Pemberton announced his purpose to meet the heavy force of the enemy advancing on the railroad, and asked for an immediate reinforcement of 3,000 cavalry as a positive necessity, he might as well have asked for the moon. Van Dorn had just been killed in a private quarrel. It was not possible to gather up 3,000 cavalry from any quarter, and Grant's solid legions were bringing intelligence of themselves with a rapidity that no dragoons could have surpassed. It was on a train between Tullahoma and Jackson that General Johnston received, on the 13th of May, his first intimation of the critical state of affairs from General Pemberton, and the first report he heard, on arriving at the capital, was General Gregg's narrative to him, in person, of his defeat at Raymond. On the receipt of this news, General Johnston, who was always extremely careful to perfect his written record in case of controversy arising between himself and his government, sent to Richmond this truthful but most unpalatable dispatch. Quote, I arrived this evening, finding the enemy's force between this place and General Pemberton, cutting off the communication. I am too late. End quote. Whether it be that his wounds and long illness had depressed his energies, or whether, in the circumstances of the case, it was possible for him and General Pemberton to withstand the splendid army and the swift movements of Grant, it is not to be denied that his management of the present campaign is the least creditable portion of his career. At the same time, having provided against the worst contingency by announcing to the Confederate government that he had arrived too late, he telegraphed to General Pemberton that he had learned Sherman was between them, with four divisions, at Clinton, saying that it was impossible to re-establish communications, that Pemberton might be reinforced, and directing him to come up in Sherman's rear at once. Quote, to beat such a detachment, he said, would be of immense value. An unnecessary truism. The troops here could cooperate. Time is all important. End quote. The whole telegram is little more than a waste of words. Pemberton, from Bovina, replied on the next day, telling what detachments he had left at Big Black and Baldwin's Ferry, two divisions to hold Vicksburg, leaving an available force of 16,000, with which he had moved at once. He was not to blame in hesitating to attack with this insufficient force, for although understated, it was still insufficient, the army of Grant, with three corps in supporting distance, any one of which would have been all that Pemberton could handle. 
On the morning of the 14th, Sherman and McPherson moved on parallel roads towards Jackson. In spite of a furious rainstorm, which had flooded the roads all night and continued until noon, the troops of both corps marched in excellent order, without straggling, and in the best of spirits. McPherson, on the northern road, had the bulk of the battle to his share. After a severe flight of two or three hours, the Confederates were beaten and fled by the Canton Road, leading due north from the town, upon which Johnston had already carried away his most valuable supplies. Sherman was opposed on the Raymond Road by several field batteries, of which he captured three and some hundreds of prisoners. General Grant was with Sherman, and the two met McPherson in the center of the town, from which the rebels had retreated, who laid before them some intercepted dispatches between Pemberton and Johnston, which put the Confederate plan, if it can be called by such a name, in their hands. Grant instantly ordered McPherson to march back on the Clinton Road and join McClernand, while Sherman remained behind for a day to break up railroads, to destroy the arsenal and various manufacturing establishments, and then to follow McPherson. The conduct of the Confederate commanders at this juncture has been the source of endless discussion between the principal parties concerned. General Johnston severely censures the Confederate government for not properly supporting him, and Pemberton for not obeying his orders, while Pemberton endeavors in his reports to throw the blame upon General Johnston, and President Davis voluminously attacks Johnston and attempts the defense of his luckless subordinate. But looking dispassionately at the situation of the two armies on the morning of the 15th of May, it is hard to see how, with the utmost harmony and goodwill on the part of the Confederates, Grant could have been defeated. His campaign was already almost a secured success. His tremendous energy in marching had made the fighting of battles a matter of secondary importance. His army, as round and solid as a cannonball, had been interposed between the two Confederate wings, each division within supporting distance of the rest, and although the national army and that of the Confederates were almost exactly equal in numbers, the rebels were so scattered in every direction that it was in the power of Grant to fall with overwhelming force upon any detachment he chose to attack. At the same time, it must be admitted that both the Confederate commanders assisted his wisdom and energy by all the mistakes which it was possible for them to make. Johnston, after having been driven out of Jackson, imagined that Grant intended permanently to occupy that place, and immediately bestirred himself from his refuge on the Canton Road to take ways and means to starve out Grant by cutting off his supplies, and for that intention, detaching a considerable force under General S. R. Gist to the east of the town. At the same time, he sent orders to Pemberton to move his army east and attack the Union rear, without any adequate comprehension of the force or the position of Grant's army. And he ever afterwards blamed Pemberton with great severity for not having carried out these orders. But when Pemberton, before the capture of Jackson, received on the morning of the 14th the first orders of this tenor, although he disapproved them and thought the result would be disastrous, he immediately prepared to obey them. He ordered his troops forward from Edwards's station, but later in the day his doubts became intolerable to himself. He called together his principal generals in council of war, and asked for their opinions. The larger number of them were in favor of strictly obeying Johnston's orders, and marching east upon the rear of the army which Johnston supposed to be between Clinton and Jackson. 
The two senior generals, however, Loring and Stevenson, favored a movement against Grant's line of communications, hoping in this way to cut off his supplies and compel him to retreat. This divergence of views only increased Pemberton's embarrassment, who for his part thought the wisest course was to wait for the battle, which he felt must soon come, in a place chosen by himself. But being forced to a decision, he made what was probably the worst one possible under the circumstances. He resolved to move to the southeast upon Grant's line of communication and supply, which he hoped to strike at the village of Dillon, a few miles to the east of Raymond and even this movement was not executed promptly. The severe rainstorm, which had not been enough to keep McPherson and Sherman out of Jackson, had so swollen the creeks in Pemberton's line of march that he was forced to make a detour to find a bridge on the Clinton Road. In this way, the greater part of the 15th of May was wasted, and night found him only a short distance on the Raymond Road, near the village of Elliston. If General Grant had himself directed the movement of the Confederate forces, he could not have disposed them more to his own advantage than Johnston and Pemberton, in their confusion, had done. With a part of Johnston's forces ordered forty or fifty miles east of Jackson for the purpose of starving out Grant, from a place he had no intention of holding, with another force to the north in search of a point of junction with Pemberton, and the latter wheeling the right wing to the south to strike the communications of an army which was living off the country, and living well, the two Confederate generals continually increased their own embarrassment by their mutual distrust and vacillation. With a force like Grant's held compactly between them, and making the most of every hour, they were still further confusing and weakening each other by dispatches which it required days to deliver, and which, when received, had been invalidated by the swift progress of events. At Elliston, on the Raymond Road, where Pemberton had rested for the night and was preparing to march in the morning of the 16th, he received an order from Johnston to join him at Clinton, a place which at that moment was equally inaccessible to both of them. Although this order was a day old, Pemberton had by this time grown apprehensive of the consequences of his disobedience, and resolved to obey the command, which had become obsolete, at a moment when its execution was impossible to him. For even while he issued the order to reverse his column towards Edwards's station, intending to seek Johnston at Brownsville, the skirmishers of McClernand's corps were already engaged with his cavalry advance. The moment Grant learned at Jackson of the intention of the enemy to join their forces and attack his rear, he determined to be beforehand with them and ordered all his troops, except Sherman, to face to the west and rendezvous in the neighborhood of Bolton's Station, a point on the railroad almost exactly in the center of a quadrilateral, composed by Brownsville and Raymond on the north and south, and Clinton and Edwards's Station on the east and west. By moving promptly to this point, he felt sure of preventing Johnston's junction with Pemberton and overwhelming the latter before assistance could reach him from any quarter. This movement necessarily placed McClernand's corps once more in the lead. Hovey's division, which had relieved McPherson at Clinton when he moved on Jackson, marched straight from Clinton to Bolton, while Osterhaus and Carr, moving on what is called the Middle Road from Raymond to Edwards's station, and Smith and Blair, the latter having just arrived from Grand Gulf with a train of two hundred wagons, bearing the only supplies which Grant had received since swinging loose from the river, followed a road a few miles south of that last mentioned, 
all three however converging upon edwards's station and within supporting distance of each other grant passed the night of the fifteenth at clinton and at daylight he was aroused from sleep to listen to the report of two men employed on the railroad who had passed through pemberton's camp the day before and who told him that pemberton with eighty regiments was moving to attack his rear the battle which was to decide the fate of vicksburg was thus upon him he sent a swift courier to sherman to bring on his force with the utmost speed to bolton mcpherson was ordered to push through bolton in support of hovey orders had been sent to mcclernand the night before to move cautiously forward on the road leading from raymond to edwards's station taking care to keep in communication with blair who was temporarily placed under his orders though belonging to sherman's division grant's aversion to mcclernand were shown in these orders he did not feel inclined to leave him that freedom of action which he was always glad to give to sherman and mcpherson and his directions were therefore unnecessarily stringent commanding him to proceed with great caution and to take care not to bring on a general engagement this order resulted badly the next day when pemberton attempted on the morning of the sixteenth to reverse his column for the purpose of joining johnston north of the railroad the power of marching away from the field he had so imprudently chosen had passed out of his hands just as the reverse movement was beginning mcclernand's advance drove in the confederate cavalry pickets and opened with artillery at long range on the head which had become the rear of their column on the raymond road but general pemberton not being sure whether this was a reconnaissance or a serious attack did not at once countermand his orders but took measures for securing the safety of his trains while his wagons were moving to the rear he became convinced that something more serious than a reconnaissance was on hand and he formed his troops in line of battle on the crossroad from the Clinton to the Raymond Road. Loring held the right, Bowen the center, and Stevenson the left. His right thus barred the road along which McClernand's corps was advancing, and his left held a strong position called Champions Hill, just south of the Vicksburg and Jackson Railroad, at a point where the Clinton Road, running west, suddenly turns at almost a right angle to the southward running along the base of the hill to what we have called the middle road which runs after crossing a bridge over baker's creek to edwards's station he had hardly completed this formation when the battle began grant riding forward from clinton in the early morning had ordered the trains moved out of the road as he hurried on and directed mcpherson to push his troops westward at the top of their speed at ten o'clock he came up with hovey whose skirmishers were already in contact with the enemy and after holding this division in check for some time waiting for the advance of mcclernand on the left general grant was probably reminded of his stringent orders of the night before by a receipt of a dispatch from mcclernand about noon already two hours old asking if he should bring on an engagement he immediately sent orders for mcclernand to attack at once but they were not received until after two o'clock three hours after the battle had opened on the right mcpherson came on the field about eleven o'clock logan in the lead and crocker following closely hovey's division immediately advanced along the left of the clinton road and moved up the eastern slope of champions hill under a severe fire from the enemy posted there logan who had formed on the right of the road 
attacked the enemy's extreme left and worked energetically round the northern slope of the hill making sure and rapid progress hovey's division met with such heavy resistance pemberton continually drawing reinforcements from his right to sustain his endangered left wing that about two o'clock hovey's troops were forced back from the hill they had captured in their advance eleven guns and in this retreat they lost nine of them but being reinforced by crocker's division which had opportunely arrived both divisions now rushed forward again with irresistible energy and drove the enemy over the hill and down to the raymond road where they retreated in a complete rout towards baker's creek barton's confederate brigade which had been opposing logan broke about the same time retreating across baker's creek by a bridge on the clinton road loring on the confederate left whom the cautious attack of mcclernand had left very much at leisure during the battle was now called upon to cover the retreat of bowen's and stevenson's divisions which were completely routed he formed his men between the two roads and was there attacked by osterhaus's division and driven from his place falling back to the raymond road he found tillman's brigade of his division had been attacked and severely handled by smith's division and tillman killed with what was left of his force loring hastened along the raymond road to the ford over baker's creek which he had been informed would be held by stevenson and bowen until he could arrive but in saying this they promised too much for late in the afternoon general carr who had crossed at the bridge had moved down the west bank and stevenson and bowen had to use all their activity to escape capture so that when loring arrived at the ford he found it occupied by a heavy force of union troops and after a comfortless night of wandering from one road and ford to another he discovered that he was cut off from the rest of the army and fled for the southeast joining johnston several days later this grant said was the hardest fought battle of the campaign the loss of the union army was twenty four hundred forty one men of whom twenty two hundred fifty four were killed and wounded the confederates lost thirty six hundred twenty four of whom twenty one hundred ninety five were prisoners they left on the field twenty four pieces of artillery on the seventeenth the pursuit was renewed mcclernand's corps leading and the enemy was overtaken at the bridge over the big black river a sharp action took place here the enemy were posted in the river bottom on the east bank within a long line of rifle pits which were defended by a bayou they presented a somewhat formidable front as the union army approached but as grant's line was extended it was found that the rifle pits could be flanked under the cover of the river bank and a brilliant assault by carr's division so demoralized the enemy that little resistance was made and a race for the bridge ensued by which the fleet confederates saved themselves with heavy loss however in prisoners and guns in the meantime sherman had reached bridgeport several miles higher up the river which he crossed in the night by means of a pontoon bridge grant was with him and the two generals sat on a log looking at the passage of the troops over the bridge which was illuminated by brilliant fires of pitch pine mcclernand and mcpherson passed the night in building floating bridges and crossed their commands early in the morning of the eighteenth this unavoidable delay enabled pemberton to bring his beaten army back to vicksburg a hot journey of twelve miles over dusty roads with all the fatigue and discouragement which a week of defeat inflicts upon the bravest soldiers 
but once inside the works of Vicksburg, their fortitude returned, and when the Union army, flushed with its victories, came surging up against the rebel works, it found them firmly held and stoutly defended. In the meanwhile, General Johnston, with a faith which would seem to have had insufficient nourishment under the circumstances, had been expecting to meet Pemberton's army, somewhere on the road from Livingston to Edwards's station. It must be admitted, however, that if he were marching in view of such a junction, he moved with singular deliberation. For during the whole day of the 16th, while Pemberton was fighting the most furious battle of the campaign at Champion's Hill, Johnston, on the report of his brigadiers that their troops were tired, rested the whole day. But the next day, having resumed his leisurely march along the road indicated to him in a dispatch which Pemberton wrote him just before he was attacked, he was met by a courier, dispatched by Pemberton on his retreat, with a full account of the disaster at Champion's Hill and a clear intimation of the defeat at the Big Black, quote, where, Pemberton said, heavy cannonading is now going on. There are so many points, he continued, by which I can now be flanked, that I fear I shall be compelled to withdraw. If so, the position at Snyder's Mill, Haynes's Bluff, will also be untenable. End quote. Although this was appalling news to Johnston, he did not lose his clearness of judgment, and immediately dispatched to Pemberton the only orders compatible with common sense in the disastrous condition of affairs. Quote, if Haynes's bluff is untenable, Vicksburg is of no value and cannot be held. If, therefore, you are invested in Vicksburg, you must ultimately surrender. Under such circumstances, instead of losing both troops in place, we must, if possible, save the troops. If it is not too late, evacuate Vicksburg and its dependencies and march to the northeast." End quote. Of course, it will be asked why Johnston did not instantly get into the saddle and, riding to Pemberton's camp, execute his own orders. The reason he gives is that his health was too infirm for him to attempt such a ride. On the next day, he received another dispatch from Pemberton, announcing that he had submitted to a council of war the orders for the evacuation of Vicksburg, and it was their unanimous decision not to obey them and this decision was accompanied by a reason more humiliating still, upon which it was founded, quote, that it was impossible to withdraw the army from this position with such morale and material as to be of further service to the Confederacy. I have decided, Pemberton continued, to hold Vicksburg as long as possible, with the firm hope that the government may yet be able to assist me in keeping this obstruction to the enemy's free navigation of the Mississippi River. I still conceive it to be the most important point in the Confederacy. End quote. Although General Johnston considered this reasoning unfounded in view of the investment of the city and the practical nullification of the obstruction referred to by the passage of the gunboats, the situation was too distressing to him for further recriminations, and he simply replied, quote, I am trying to gather a force which may attempt to relieve you. Hold out. End quote. It may be said that the trap was already sprung before Pemberton communicated to Johnston the decision of his council of war, which had broken up to the booming of Grant's cannons only a few hundred yards away. The army had moved forward during the 18th with the same celerity and the same solidity of column with which they had marched through the state. As they arrived in the neighborhood of the Confederate works, McClernand's force was sent to the left and McPherson's to the center 
while Sherman took his corps, which had marched by the upper road, and moved to the right until he rested upon the bluffs of the Mississippi in full communication with the north. Haines's bluff fell without a blow. A few cavalrymen riding into the works which had so long baffled the great army. And Grant and Sherman, who had come together during the last stage of the march, rode side by side up to the farthest heights of the Walnut Hills, commanding a view of the Yazoo River and the beetling bluffs where Sherman, six months before, had made so brave an attack and met with so disastrous a repulse. And the two friends realized, at last, that the triumphant campaign was ending, and that a victory more complete and splendid than Sherman had deemed possible, or than even Grant had anticipated, had crowned with immortal honor the Army of the Tennessee. Sherman, turning to Grant, said, quote, this is a success, if we never take the town. End quote. Footnote. Mr. Jefferson Davis, writing eighteen years after the fact, could still not reconcile himself to the success of this campaign. He enumerated the wise and prudent measures he took to oppose Grant. He says he wrote, quote, To the Governor Pettus, a man worthy of all confidence, as well for his patriotism as his manhood, requesting him to use all practicable means to get every man and boy capable of aiding their country in its need to turn out, mounted or on foot, with whatever weapons they had, to aid the soldiers in driving the invader from our soil. The facilities the enemy possessed in river transportation, and the aid which their ironclad gunboats gave to all operations where land and naval forces could be combined, were lost to Grant in this interior march which he was making. Success gives credit to military enterprises. Had this failed, as I think it should, it surely would have been pronounced an egregious blunder. End quote. Davis, Rise and Fall of the Confederate Government, Volume 2, page 400. End footnote. End of chapter 7. Recording by Owen Cook in Potawatomi, Ceded Land.